On March 23, 1692, a warrant was issued by Magistrates John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin compelling Essex County Marshal George Herrick and his deputy Samuel Bradbrook to take into custody yet another accused individual. By now, the magistrates and marshals were getting used to this exercise. The witch hysteria had been building for several weeks. Accusations were flying now, resulting in numerous arrests. Since the first three women, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichaba, had been taken into custody three weeks earlier, Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse had also been arrested. And soon, Elizabeth Proctor and several others would be accused and brought before the magistrates on suspicion of witchcraft as well. Unlike most witchcraft accusations that had previously occurred in North America, which usually amounted to no more than one or two accusations at a time, the situation in Salem that spring was clearly developing into something much bigger. Fear was reaching a fever pitch, and the situation seemed to be boiling out of control. The arrest warrant that Herrick and Bradbrook were acting upon that late March day was similar to the other warrants that had been issued and would continue to be issued throughout the crisis. The brief complaints against the accused were officially filed by Edward Putnam and his uncle, Captain John Putnam, but they did so on behalf of 12-year-old Ann Putnam Jr., the niece and grandniece of Edward and John, respectively. Additional complaints against the accused were also made by Mercy Lewis, who happened to serve as the Putnam's maidservant, as well as Mary Walcott. The three relatively vague complaints against the accused said more or less the same thing. The afflicted girls claimed to have been pinched, bitten, and choked by this individual in an effort to get them to sign the devil's book. Many similar complaints would be made against other individuals in the months ahead. In many ways, these particular complaints almost seemed like a template that would be used over and over again throughout the witch crisis. In any case, the authorities took the complaints seriously and wasted no time bringing the accused into custody. Reverend Diodat Lawson, the former minister of Salem Village Church who had returned there to see for himself what had been happening to his former flock, apparently witnessed the examination of this accused individual. According to his notes, which he later published as part of a book about the witch crisis, when the afflicted girls were brought before the accused on March 24th, as if on cue, they had dramatic outbursts. The conditions of Anne, Mercy, and Mary only worsened when the accused so much as cast a glance at them. This melodramatic behavior was already becoming commonplace. 
and it would repeat itself many times over in the months ahead. Yet such theatrical displays from the so-called afflicted proved to be quite effective. And in this case, it helped to convince the magistrates to detain the accused in jail. Of course, there was nothing unusual about any of this. It was a turn of events that had played itself out several times already in Salem, and would repeat itself dozens of more times over the course of that frightening year. Citizens being accused by fellow citizens and brought before the magistrates to face perhaps the most horrifying charges imaginable. Still, on this day, something was dramatically different. That's because in this particular case, the accused was not one of the usual suspects. She was not some ornery old lady living on the margins of society. Instead, the suspect being detained for witchcraft that late March day was a four-year-old girl named Dorothy Good. Dorothy was the daughter of Sarah Good, who was among the three original accused women arrested earlier that month. Dorothy's father, William Good, was Sarah's second husband, and the couple had fallen on hard times years earlier. Sarah had been born prosperous in the 1650s, but by the time she had come of age, she missed out on a substantial inheritance that she had been set to receive from her deceased father when her mother remarried. To make matters worse, Sarah's first husband, who died in 1682, left her with a series of debts that she was obligated to pay. Ultimately, the weight of these financial burdens proved too heavy for Sarah and William Good. And by the time their daughter Dorothy was born in 1688, the family no longer had a permanent home, forcing them to live off of the charity of others. Even at a time when the notion of childhood was much different than it is today, when children grew up without many of the unique protections that are usually afforded to them, Dorothy's early life must have been a nightmare. Without a fixed home and undoubtedly being forced to traipse around the community with her mother as she begged others for their meager subsistence, perhaps even joining in on these pleas for help, Dorothy must have endured unimaginable trauma. And after she was arrested for suspicion of witchcraft, it's reasonable to wonder, given her young age, if Dorothy was even cognizant of the trouble she was in. In fact, it's easy to imagine the joy and excitement that Dorothy might have felt at her rendezvous with her mother when she was brought to her prison cell. After all, given Sarah's arrest, Dorothy presumably hadn't seen her mother in over three weeks. The two had finally been reunited, albeit under very grim circumstances, with mother and child both facing the dire accusation of witchcraft. Witchcraft. 
According to Reverend Lawson's account, two days after Dorothy's arrest on March 26, the magistrates spoke with the child again. This time, Dorothy told them about a little pet snake that her mother had given her. She explained to the magistrates that the snake would often bite her on her finger. When pressed further by her examiners, Dorothy, perhaps excited to have the opportunity to speak about this pet of hers, which might very well have been one of the few things in her life that brought Dorothy any levity, she did what any four-year-old was likely to do. She pointed eagerly to the red spot about the brightness of a flea bite, Lawson noted, to playfully show them exactly where her pet snake bites her. But the magistrates were in no mood to indulge the playfulness of a young child. Instead, with what must have been dire seriousness, they explicitly asked if it was, quote, the great black man who had given her the snake. Their implication being that this dark and mysterious being was the devil himself. Dorothy shook her head no, perhaps not even understanding their line of questioning. It was her mother who had given her the snake, Dorothy explained, not some strange and menacing figure. It's easy to imagine the charged emotion that must have been permeating Salem in that early spring, and that jumpy atmosphere seemed to lead the authorities to make wild assumptions. For the magistrates, this pet snake could only have been Dorothy's familiar. It was widely believed at the time that a witch would often partner with a so-called familiar or an animal of some kind that would assist them in carrying out their wicked duties. Toads and frogs were common familiars, as were cats and dogs. But it's easy to see how the frayed nerves of the magistrates could lead them to believe that this pet snake was Dorothy's evil accomplice. And even if the devil had not provided young Dorothy with a familiar, given that her mother was also an accused witch and most likely an agent of the underworld herself, the difference was immaterial. The revelation about Dorothy's pet snake seemed to be all the evidence that the magistrates needed to keep this unfortunate four-year-old child locked away for months. One aspect of the Salem witch crisis that continues to fascinate us today are the number of strange observances that those involved were said to have experienced. Many who claimed to be afflicted by so-called witches often made outlandish statements while in the throes of their torment or during interviews with the authorities. They contorted their bodies into impossible positions. They spoke in unintelligible tongues. They claimed to see the devil himself whispering into the ears of those they accused. They claimed to see specters of their neighbors in all manner of compromising positions. They claimed to see strange-looking dogs and cats and yellow birds. Some even claimed to witness their neighbors drinking the blood and eating the flesh of human beings. While there were those who remained skeptical, most who heard these bizarre and outlandish accusations from those who claimed to be afflicted were not the least bit surprised. It was as if they had been expecting to hear such things. 
Their firm belief in the insidious power of the devil was a deadly serious matter. Of course, Satan could compel almost anyone to do all manner of terrible things, no matter how gruesome or unusual they might be. Late 17th century New England Puritans lived a fraught and harrowing existence, with a range of existential dangers both real and imagined all around them. It was this grim and dangerous environment that nurtured these distressing notions, and that in turn enabled so many to easily imagine that a four-year-old girl could be an agent of the devil, capable of wreaking enormous havoc on all the good people around her. Dorothy Good spent more than eight months locked away in prison. During this time, she witnessed her mother give birth in their putrid and dank jail cell. And then, shortly after, she experienced the infant's cruel death, likely succumbing to the harsh and dangerous conditions of their confinement. Then, immediately following this horrifically traumatic experience, Dorothy's mother, Sarah, was taken from her cell and from Dorothy for the last time. In mid-July, she was hauled to Proctor's Ledge and executed for the crime of witchcraft. Dorothy, who couldn't have been more than five years old at the time, was now imprisoned alone. Having just experienced the traumatic loss of her infant sibling as well as her mother in quick succession, this young child remained locked away, all by herself, accused of the most heinous crime imaginable and likely assuming that she herself would soon face her mother's fate. In a history full of cruel and unusual events, the story of Dorothy Good is perhaps the most devastating of them all. No matter how callous or frightened the authorities might have been in the spring of 1692, it's impossible not to wonder how they could have treated this young child in such a way. It was perhaps inevitable that Dorothy Good's horrific experiences as a young child would prove devastating to her as an adult. Little is known of her condition when she was finally released from prison in December 1692, as a witch hysteria was abating. But in a petition filed by her father nearly two decades later, when Dorothy would have been in her mid-twenties, William Good suggested that her experiences as a young child in prison had led to her inability to care for herself as an adult. Quote, being chained in the dungeon so hardly used and terrified that she hath ever since been very changeable, having little or no reason to govern herself, her father wrote in the petition. Thanks to recent research conducted by Rachel Chris Dunn, the director of education at the Salem Witch Museum, We've learned more about Dorothy's adulthood. It seems that Dorothy likely did not live with her father for long after her release from prison. Like many widowed men at the time, William remarried quickly, and it seemed that his troubled daughter no longer fit into his plans. 
In her 20s, Dorothy came under the care of Benjamin Putnam, a cousin of Thomas Putnam Jr., one of the most prolific accusers during the witch crisis. Unlike his cousin, however, Benjamin had stayed mostly on the sidelines during the witch hysteria. Following Benjamin's death, it seemed that the charge of caring for Dorothy was transferred to Nathaniel and Hannah Putnam. At some point around this time, Dorothy had become pregnant, and because she did not have a husband, she was ordered to leave Salem, as was often the case at the time. Yet Nathaniel and his wife volunteered to continue to care for Dorothy, as well as her new infant daughter, who was also named Dorothy, for the next two years. Dorothy Jr. was also indentured to the Putnam family, a common relationship at the time that was thought to give a child born under such circumstances an opportunity to gain a skill. The situation enabled the new mother and her child, however briefly, to remain in a relatively stable and secure environment. But unfortunately for Dorothy, that situation wouldn't last long. Eventually, Dorothy had another child out of wedlock, this time a son. Dorothy and her new infant continued to bounce around to a variety of different caretakers, including Robert Hutchinson and his son John, as well as Jonathan Batchelder, a man who had testified against Dorothy's mother during the witch trials. She also spent time at the local workhouse, a new institution at the time where the authorities would often send impoverished, able-bodied people. As the 18th century progressed, Dorothy's search for a stable environment seemed to take her further afield. She shows up in the historical record in Concord, Massachusetts, and well beyond. Then, on August 14, 1761, a notice in the New London Summary newspaper reported that a nearly decomposed body had been found in a desolate bog in the northern section of town. Quote, it was the body of one Dorothy Good, the report noted, a transient, vagrant person who had wandered into said desolate place and perished. While it is possible that the deceased remains found in that swamp might have been either Dorothy or her daughter, regardless of the case, the winding and tragic path that Dorothy Good's life took following the witch crisis led to little more than trials and tribulation. While the manner in which Dorothy Good was treated is undoubtedly shocking, it also reveals much about the world that she occupied. It provides a window into how children were treated at the time, as well as another example of the marginalization of women. With her mother already accused, Dorothy, in spite of her age, was an easy target. And it must be asked, 
Would Dorothy have been arrested at all if she had been a boy? Dorothy's story also illustrates the clear deficiency of care given to those who were suffering from mental illness. Beyond the intermittent charity of others, Dorothy had no recourse to receive the care that she clearly required. But perhaps what Dorothy Good's story illustrates more than anything else is the extent to which fear ruled the day in Salem that spring. Just weeks after the witch hysteria began, the panic had already become so palpable that imprisoning an impoverished four-year-old girl on the grounds that she was an agent of the devil had become a logical thing to do. Dorothy Good's unimaginably tragic story offers a unique and terrifying example of the way that fear can drive humanity to strike against the most vulnerable among us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.